A few weeks ago, while my eldest son and I were talking as we took his dog for a walk late in the evening, the conversation turned to experiences he had as a youth in our church, and then more specifically to the trips he had been on to El Salvador to visit our sister church there. We were trying as we walked to match up memories to dates with the thought that knowing when it was might help us remember who went along, especially the young people. The next day I did some looking at my files of photos on my computer and I found all the photos I have from trips to El Salvador. The one he went on with the youth group in 2012, the one we both went on with an intergenerational group to work on the San Rafael Clinic in 2007, and finally the earliest trip I made with the Manchester Church of the Brethren Witness Commission in 2005, 18 years ago. He appreciated seeing the photos from the two trips he went on, but I was drawn to the photos from the very first trip I went on in 2005, partly because of how young I looked but mostly because my most vivid memories from that early, are from that earliest trip, I think because it was such a new experience. There were six of us from our congregation who participated in this Get Acquainted visit and learning experience. Me, Conrad Snavely, Ed Miller, Jim Townsend, Judy Brown, and our worship leader for today, Teresa Anderko. She also looked much younger. Ed Miller looks the same. On that trip, we participated in Bible study and worshiped at our sister church. We spent time with young adults. We went to various villages to see projects the church was sponsoring, saw some cultural, historical, and political landmarks and displays, and learned to know some of the church leaders. We traveled long distances, sometimes on nearly impassable roads. We saw the grit of the city and the beauty of the countryside. We ate local food and tried to communicate past our language limitations. We even slept one night in a hotel with no beds, just some air mattresses scrounged up to put on the floor. And we discovered that it doesn't have to be dawn for roosters to start crowing. (laughs) The entire visit was a very rich and eye-opening experience. That's maybe the best way to put it. It was eye-opening. Everywhere we went and everywhere we looked, there was something to not only catch our attention, but to challenge our assumptions. And because we had to take things as they came and abandon our preconceived notions, our preconceived expectations, some amazing things came into view. For me, one of those amazing things that came into view took place on the outskirts of a town called Nueva Granada. When we arrived there one afternoon about midweek, we were introduced to town officials who told us of their partnership with Iglesia Baptista Emanuel on a project to bring running water to the town. The community had been there more than a hundred years, but never had running water. 
The project, which the municipal leaders and church representatives undertook together, involved purchasing a piece of land about two miles outside of town where there was a large natural spring. And then using local labor, two large pumps were installed there to pump the water uphill to two 8,000-gallon water tanks, one at either end of the town. And finally, they had to build the distribution system of pipes to each home. Oh, and by the way, the town had 9,000 residents, more than live here in North Manchester. So here was the eye-opening part. We were taken by truck and jeep out from the town to the area where the pumps were being installed. We stopped at the side of the road, and our guides pointed straight down the side of the mountain to a deep ravine. There was a steep, muddy path there, and we started to walk. The path was twisting, and as we descended, we entered into rather dense jungle. I could imagine then how people could have hidden in the mountains during the years of civil war in El Salvador. Once you got a little ahead of the next person behind you or fell behind the person in front of you, it was easy to feel as if you were the only person in the world. It was a long walk down, but through the trees every once in a while we could spot an an electric line strung from pole to pole, the power for the pumps, as well as the water pipes themselves elevated about two or three feet off the ground, and we knew we were still on the right path. Finally, we reached the bottom, and there we came upon a beehive of activity. Men pouring concrete, shoveling dirt, carrying bags and tools. A pump house was being constructed there, and through it flowed a steady stream of bright, clear, forceful water, the spring yielding fresh water at a tremendous rate. I have a few pictures I'd like to show. That's our group. See, Ed still does look the same, doesn't he? There we're standing in front of one of the tanks. There's the pipe. There's the path. There they're working on the pump house. And there's the water flowing. While we were there at the bottom of the ravine, admiring the work, a small boy came careening down the path on a bicycle about a size too large for him. He had come to bring his father his lunch. As we started back up the path, the little boy started back as well. The path was so steep that he could barely push his bicycle back up the way he had come. But he was obviously proud of having been of help to his father by bringing lunch. Some of us took turns helping him push his bike back up the side of the mountain. It was a long walk back. As we walked and I took my turn pushing the bicycle, I thought about the tremendous effort it must have been to carry all the materials down the side of the mountain. The bags of concrete, the stone, the tools, the electric poles. But bit by bit, pound by pound, and journey after journey, they had done it. I knew that because I had seen the result. Still, it was almost unbelievable to walk down the side of that mountain, down a steep jungle trail, and arrive at a pumping station. And just as amazing was the thought that very soon, some woman several miles away, someone who had carried water every day of her entire life, 
would be turning on a tap in her house and clean water would run from that pipe. And in my imagination, I wondered, would that woman who had carried water every day of her life up until that point make a trip to see the source of that which would mean she would walk for water no more? Would she need to see for herself where that water came from? Would she need to touch for herself the spring, the gigantic pumps, the electric transformers, the miles of pipes, in order to make sense of or believe in the miracle of running water? Or would she just let the water run over her hands and give thanks? Would touching the result, the water running out of the tap, be enough? If it were me, I suspect I'd want to see and touch all of it. So I think as I consider this morning's scripture story, I think I understand Thomas. I understand his need to see for himself, to put his hands on the risen Christ. I'd like to think that I'm not as obstinate as he is, unless I put my hands on him, but I might be. And I think I understand Because I know that it is not uncommon for us to live life in a certain direction, along a well-worn path, a familiar pattern, to orient ourselves toward that which is predictable, that which is tangible, that which is the way it's always been. And it's not uncommon when pushed by events out of the ordinary to try to regain control with demands for proof, to see or touch for ourselves. Thomas often draws criticism, but I'm not so sure he's so different from most of us. He just needs to see for himself, to hold it in his hands, to touch it, to feel it. Water may flow from the faucet, but until he puts his hands on the outside of the pumping station, or even better, in the flow of the spring itself, secondhand reports of the freshness of that water are not enough. But then Jesus does appear again, and he greets Thomas with the invitation to touch his hands and his fingers and his side. He invites Thomas to believe, and Thomas does, my Lord and my God. Does it make Thomas's faith less real than if he believed about Jesus' invitation to see and touch? No. But Jesus does note that there is a blessing for those who have not seen and yet believe. In the case of our sister church relationship with the congregation in El Salvador, a relatively small number of us have been there to see their work, their ministries, the life of their congregation. And some of the people who have gone there are no longer among us. Three of the six who went in 2005 aren't here anymore. Judy Brown moved away, and both Conrad Snavely and Jim Townsend have died. And most of you will never go to El Salvador You will hear our weekly prayer concerns as we name them each Sunday, but you will never actually see those people face to face, hold their hands, embrace them with your arms. So I want to ask this, can you believe in them? 
And I ask that question not in the sense, can you believe that they exist? But can you believe that they are your sisters and brothers if you've never seen them, never touched them? Can you believe that their spiritual well-being is tied to your spiritual well-being? Can you believe that what we do for them, past, present, future, is something that blesses us as well? And can you believe in the miracles of their ministries, running water after a hundred years of carrying it a bucket at a time? Can you believe in them? I know it's not easy, especially if you've not seen what I have seen because always there is a strong bias toward the familiar, toward your own sense of sight and touch. And I know that we are more comfortable in our own surroundings, and I know that we find it hard to credit others with equal good judgment and good sense should our cultural preferences or priorities diverge. And sometimes we can even be friends with people who are different from us and still somehow feel superior. Or we can look at all that we have and sometimes think ourselves more deserving than others. So it can be hard to believe, to believe beyond ourselves, to believe that something as simple and basic as running water isn't a measure of our deservedness, but a humble blessing deserved by all. Or to believe in our solidarity or our connection to the whole human family. Easter is a season when we remember and celebrate the resurrection of Christ, but it's also a time when we are invited to all come alive again, alive in Christ, when we are invited to no longer hide behind locked doors, invited to no longer demand to see each and everything for ourselves, to touch everything with our hands. Easter is a season when we are invited to trust in God's goodness, reflected in the human love that we have come to know and to no longer separate belief and life. But even after resurrection, stepping out of our self-imposed limits and hesitancies and skepticisms is still a challenge. It takes trust to see the possibilities and it takes courage to trust without holding everything in our own hands. Craig Dykstra, writing about pastoral and congregational imagination in an article titled A Way of Seeing, uses the example of teaching children to swim as he talks about the active passivity of letting ourselves be embraced. He writes, years ago when I was a seminary student, I worked for a time at the local YMCA teaching swimming lessons. My students were three- and four-year-old children. Each Saturday morning at 9 o'clock, down the steps they would come from the locker rooms into the pool area as their parents sat along the wall watching warily, the little ones wandered over toward the shallow end of the pool where I was waiting. He continues, you know how little kids hold themselves when they are cold and at least a little bit nervous? They clutch up and shiver. They hold themselves tight and grit their teeth. Well, it is the law of nature that you cannot swim while cramping your body and gnashing your teeth. Dykstra goes on to describe his teaching method, or as I 
would Mike, might call it with today's topic and text in mind. He describes his way of encouraging trust and belief in someone who does not have it all in hand. He writes, what I would do is take one child at a time off the edge of the pool and into my arms. Holding them close, I would carry them gently into the water. As we went, we talked quietly. I tried to make them smile and ease them somewhat into relaxation. Along the way, I would dip down into the water, allowing them to feel the warmth of it and the flow of it across their skin. After a while, maybe on the third or fourth venture with me into the deep, I would sink them lower and let them feel the water buoy them up. Eventually, I could lay them on their backs and holding my hands beneath them, get them to begin to relax their knees, let loose the muscles in their necks, and slowly draw air into their lungs. At first, of course, when I would remove my hands, they would panic a bit. They would clutch up again and start to sink. But sooner or later, they would finally get the feel of what it is like to float. And at that point, they would roll over and start to swim. He notes, the first priority in teaching children to swim is to enable them to trust the water. And then he makes the jump to faith. So it is with the life of faith. At the heart of the Christian life, there lies a deep, somatic, bodily, profoundly personal, but very real knowledge. It is the knowledge of the buoyancy of God. Perhaps coming away from the empty tomb toward the uncertain days that follow, we can imagine the post-resurrection disciples not as willful doubters or skeptics, but as nervous, shivering children at the edge of the pool. And perhaps we can imagine ourselves in the same way. That is, perhaps we can see ourselves in that same frame of mind and struggle for faith any time that we are on the edge of the deep end, whether that is personally or cross-culturally or medically or relationally or emotionally. Even if we can't see the bottom of the pool or touch the bottom of the pool, can we trust the water? Can we feel ourselves floating in the buoyancy of God? You can't know until you get in Maybe like Thomas, you think that you have to touch the side of the pool or feel the bottom with your feet, but perhaps Jesus can grace you with a gentle revelation so that maybe, somehow, you mysteriously or even miraculously find the courage courage to just step into the water, even when you know it will be over your head, and then learn to float and then to swim. I like the image that perhaps in the days that followed the resurrection, after standing around and shivering a bit with a little encouragement from Jesus, Thomas and the others finally climbed into the pool. And we know that they learned how to swim, or we wouldn't be here today. This Easter season, will we too have faith enough to step into water, even when it's deeper than what we can touch? Will we have faith enough to float. As I said at the beginning of the sermon, I went back to El Salvador a second time about three years after that first trip, and again it was eye-opening, but it wasn't as surprising as the first time. 
I imagine that's because I already learned to believe in the people I met, to believe in them as brothers and sisters, as persons whose well-being is connected to mine. So now I'd like to think that I have more faith, even in things I cannot trust or touch, things I thought I couldn't trust, things I cannot touch, things like solidarity, hope, friendship, running water in a faraway place. And I have hope that we will all come to believe in our ability to float, even when we can't touch, to float, to believe in the buoyancy of God. May it be so. Amen.